Hi guys, welcome back to the Colorful Plates podcast, your weekly source for what's happening in the produce and food service world. This week's Chef Feature podcast features Jamie's full interview with Chef Chris Smith from the Allison in Portland, Oregon. Chef Chris dives into a variety of topics, including his journey to culinary, what produce he's working with this summer, which is his favorite summer veggie, and his approach to utilizing all the food he sources to its fullest. Let's take a listen and hear what Chef Chris has to say. Okay, so where are you currently working and what's your title? I'm working at the Allison Inn and Spa and I'm the executive chef. Uh, where is the Allison located? So the Allison is right in the outskirts of Newburgh. We're kind of on the northern edge of the Willamette Valley, right in the heart of Oregon wine country. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about how you became a chef and why you became a chef. Well, <laughs> that's kind of a, a long and convoluted story. Uh, really, I've been cooking since I was a very small child. I've always kind of acted I'll back up. I didn't quite always enjoy it. It wasn't always the easiest thing for me. Yeah. Um, but I did quickly learn to grow and appreciate and really kind of love cooking. Yeah. Uh, when I started getting a little bit older, you know, late or mid or to late teens, I decided I'd go off to culinary school and see if I could hack it in the professional world and, you know, see if it was something I enjoyed doing. Um, yeah. Hospitality and taking care of people was really has always been my passion. I've always enjoyed it. Um, so to see if I could parlay that into enjoying the cooking side of things as well on a professional scope was my next step. And went off, started culinary school, just loved the people that I went to school with, uh, loved the culture in the kitchen, and transferred that to my professional career. I started working as I was in school and never looked back. Awesome. So, um, Give us an idea of how many people you serve a night on average at the Allison and how long it takes to prep for serving that amount of people. If we're looking at just a dinner service on an average night, right now we're going to say about 75 to 80 is about the average um, guest count in the restaurant. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as prepping that out, it's hard to say exactly how long. Certainly mm -hmm. some of the work is done a day or two in advance, but in general, well, the first of our crew arrives at about 11 in the morning mm -hmm. uh, to start prepping for a dinner service, and the rest of the crew starts at about 1 to 2 o'clock, and dinner service starts at 5.30. So total man hours, we're talking about about 12-ish, yeah. getting ready for a service, um, spread out across you know a few different shifts of knocking out work for three and a half, four hours. Yeah, okay. Um so what produce are you excited to work with right now? Uh, a lot of obscure stuff. Um, certainly that doesn't necessarily mean it's the stuff we get to use the most of. And uh -huh. I'm sure you're quite aware summer is upon us, which means there is squash in everything. Yeah. Um, tomatoes are one of my favorite products to work with, especially when the, the weather gets like this. Um, tomatoes I've had a love-hate relationship with across my life. Yeah. Uh, when I was much younger, I despised them, I, but I had never really had a good tomato. Mm -hmm. And my first experience with eating a fresh off the vine, beautiful tomato really just changed that. And I've been definitely in love with them ever since then. So one of the the joys of where I'm working at is we've got an acre and a half garden and we have about seven different rows of tomatoes. Uh, about 14 varieties interspersed throughout there and wow. just walking through those rows, running my hands through the 
the vines and getting all that beautiful tomato flavor. Yeah. It just kind of sticks with you. And it, that smell kind of lifts the spirits. There's, I've been super thrilled to work with those. Yeah, there's nothing better than a perfectly ripe tomato. And seriously, and, and like a homegrown. And it's just, it's one of my favorite things, actually. I Especially heirlooms. I like love heirlooms. Yeah. Um, I have so five plants at home right now that are about nine feet tall. So <laughs> yeah, well they're um, they're in season in right now, right? I mean this is this is like prime time for tomatoes. Yeah, this is just kicking off the the outdoor season. Um, we've got about two weeks under our belt, really good ripe tomatoes, but they haven't even fit or hit full production up here yet. So yeah. definitely Californians seen it a little sooner in eastern oregon eastern washington sees it a little sooner as well but for the western and more coastal areas this is just getting into that prime production yeah awesome okay so what would be your biggest challenge when you're working with seasonal produce uh, using it up when it's at its peak is yeah. always the biggest challenge uh, you mm -hmm. really have to find ways to utilize it in as many outlets definitely and just finding different things to do with it because as much as I love tomatoes, um, other people can get tired of just seeing that on every single dish. So yeah. incorporating the the scraps and wastes, you know, into sauces and soups, um, roasting them off, making vinaigrettes, doing whatever you can. Because mm -hmm. the thing with seasonal produce is everything comes into uh, the peak of ripeness all at once. And yeah. you go from a little trickling of product to just drowning in it and mm -hmm. obviously as as stewards of this earth we have an obligation to not waste anything and that can mm -hmm. definitely be challenging um the the fruit that can't be served or the vegetables that can't be served in a restaurant setting then those are the ones you know the ones that are really blemished you still don't want to waste those so finding them either using them as animal fodder um we have some pig farmers that we donate barrels of food to Oh, okay. Otherwise, at the very least, turning it into compost so it can give nutrients to the next round of, of produce. But there's yeah. nothing more heartbreaking than just seeing beautiful produce go to waste. I know it's a it's it's hard though. It is really difficult to use. I mean, even me, I'm not a chef, but I'll buy stuff from the grocery store and I'll just let it sit in my refrigerator sometimes, and it's so upsetting, you know. Yep. The the thing with that is don't buy something unless you have a plan for it. We got to have a plan I know. from the outset, you know, make it, make an idea board of what you'd like to see and what you'd like to do and then dedicate time out of your day to just making that happen. It's so easy for us to get caught yeah. up in our lives and not take care of that <laughs> stuff around us, be it's it so true. or other people or anything, you know, that's, we've got to find that time to make sure that we're, we're taking care of ourselves and treating ourselves right and treating ourselves to the bounty of the the bounty of the earth that we're taking home yeah it's very true um so talk uh let's let's or i'm gonna move on to um distributor like kind of what you look for in one and like what your biggest challenge is um so chris what do you look for in a distributor Somebody who holds the same values as us, um, believes in honoring and taking care of the local community, uh, believes in the, the seasonality of produce. Mm -hmm. Don't just bring me 
anything from around the world just because we can get it. Let's try and focus on what's in season and what really makes sense. Um, and somebody who, you know, has those community morals, who is a part of the community, gives back um, and wants to be a part of it and isn't just there to turn a profit. Mm -hmm. So then what would be your biggest challenge when you work with distributors? Making sure I have my product on time. <laughs> no, in all reality, there's there are a lot of distributors who who don't have that um, that mentality that I was speaking of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, they're not really necessarily invested in the community. They're not a part of the community. They might be based out of the the Midwest and just or I mean, I was just pulling an area out of the out of the hat. Yeah. Don't, don't take it the wrong way. And I think that I don't like the Midwest. Um, no, 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 no. That's fine. But it could, it's, you know, there's just a lot of people who are out there and they lose sight of things. They're not connected to the product they're selling, which is probably the biggest issue that happens. Yeah. Is that they're just clicking a box and sending out products because they have it in their inventory and they don't know what's going on with it. Mm -hmm. How do you continue to stay creative in the kitchen and what advice can you give chefs to stay creative? The biggest thing is staying in touch with your food. Um, seeing it in its whole state um, i like to walk through the fields and you know like i said touch the produce and go through it and taste it in the field because that when you're in outside in nature and experiencing whatever product they may be you're engaging more senses than just your taste um, once you bring a product into the kitchen and are cleaning it up and you're essentially sterilizing it and getting it ready for a plate you're missing out on the pollen you're missing out on what's happening with the natural light you know on what's happening with your sense of smell just the other flavors and, and uh, aromas that are growing around it and that can be a huge source of inspiration uh, and might make you look mm -hmm. at the product differently than you have before seeing what is growing next to those complementary flavors i mean there's an old adage that what grows together goes together but it really is true Mm -hmm. And it's something that you miss when you're not out there working with the products themselves and experiencing them before they come in the back doors of the kitchen. Yeah. Um, and that's been a huge, a huge way for me to continue to push myself and my creativity. Um, eating out a lot <laughs> helps a lot as mm -hmm. well. We as chefs rarely ever have time for that, but finding that time to go to your biggest competitors and you know people you respect and look up to experience their their visions and their their operations and seeing what they're doing not so that you can copy it or steal it but you might get a, a little glimpse of inspiration from what somebody else is doing yeah um, leaving your ego out of it is a huge part you know this isn't this is a very ego driven industry but mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be yeah and when you open yourself up to new ideas and new ways of thinking you're going to just do better. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then reading a ton of books. I, I go to old bookstores and look at, you know, old cookbooks and brand new cookbooks and collect them all, pour through them and just look at what's been done, see where we've been. And there's so many recipes that I'm sure have just been forgotten. Yeah. So people have stopped cooking that way. And there's very valuable information in where we've been. Yeah. Take us to exciting new places. Awesome. Um, so what is your favorite 
um, meal on the men on your menu right now? On the menu right now, um, I'm really happy with our scallops right now. Not necessarily the most seasonal dish, uh, but we've got this beautiful like vanilla scented plum puree. Uh, we're pickling some plums that are all coming out from right behind our garden. Uh, we have this soft wheat berry porridge with a, a yuzu dressing and a little bit of frisee, some house-made bacon, and uh, just some shaved radishes and seared scallops to finish it off. It's a, a great little kind of east meets west dish with just subtle influences, um, taking some, you know, natural beauty from the garden, preserving it, um, and tying it together with just these fantastic sweet scallops. Yeah, you are extremely creative. I think the when when I was there and ate there, I had a pork dish with I want to say it was um god, I don't know, it was like infused with buttered popcorn. It, it had like a popcorn oh, yeah, taste. The, Do you know what I'm talking about? The popcorn grits. Yeah. Yes. That was insane. Yeah, that's those grits are, they're actually adapted from one of my old pastry chefs I worked with who was making popcorn ice cream and had this beautiful milk that was all infused with popcorn. And it literally just tasted like being at a movie theater. And I kind of stole that technique from him to make grits with it. <laughs> yeah, well, it tasted like buttered popcorn. And I was kind of, I was blown away by <laughs> How exactly how much it really did taste like it and it's kind of crazy and it was perfect with the pork yeah that's i first actually did that dish for i think it was national popcorn day or something oh, wow. i was like hmm, this would be fun and did it kind of as a little bit of a um a pr stunt but it was so good that i've revisited it and tweaked it and brought it back a couple of different times it's yeah that's a really fun one and i mean who doesn't love popcorn yeah. Yeah. So actually, I, I have a, another question for you. So when you're planning your menu, do you base it off of feedback from the guests? Um, so like if a guest really likes a dish, do you get that feedback and do you continue to keep it on the menu? Or do you just adjust your menu according to what's in season and what you want to do? Um, no, I take a little bit of... <laughs> So guest feedback is a yeah. tricky subject because you have to, um, you, what you hear is a very, very slim portion of what's actually being felt. Uh, mm -hmm. Most guests are not very vocal about whether they liked or disliked it. Um, but I definitely take some of that feedback into account. If there is a dish that is just overwhelmingly negative feedback, then that dish does not stick around very long, yeah. regardless of how much myself or my crew likes it. Um, and there are other dishes that I've tried to take off the menu that just keep coming back and back and back because guests do love them so much. Yeah. So there's there's definitely some of that that plays in. Um, a lot of that can't be accomplished with mm -hmm. really seasonal dishes, though, because when the, the product starts going out of season, it doesn't matter how much you love it. You're not going to love yeah. it as much when it's out of season produce that's going on that dish. Yeah, and yeah. It's time for it to go, and it might be back next year in a slightly different mm. form. But mm. yeah, it's a it's a delicate game trying to. I mean, obviously, we're here to make our guests happy and make sure that they're getting everything they want. But that can't always be accomplished 
to the highest levels of execution. And sometimes you have to make a couple compromises and a dish might have to go away for a while until it can come back in its best form. All right, guys, that's all we have for Chef Chris this week. Thank you, Chris, for taking the time to chat with us. I know I definitely enjoyed hearing about um, your culinary adventures and how you stay inspired. And I also would really love to get my hands on some of those popcorn-infused grits. Um, Being Southern, that's one of my favorite things. Thanks again for taking the time to speak with us this week. Be sure to tune in on Monday, everybody, as I will be speaking with Monique Bienvenue from B-Sweet Citrus. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. And as always, stay fresh.